Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. Today's show is the book of the month. On the first day of each month, we review a new book. In order to be considered for book of the month, a book needs to meet a very simple criteria. It needs to be impactful enough that it can either change your life or your perspective on the world. Of course, whether it does or not depends on how you consume the book. If you merely read it and comment passively on how good it is, then you're just entertaining yourself and you're watching the game of life from the stands. But if you want to play the game on the court, then reading the book to make it part of you is the path to engaging what you read. The book this month definitely meets the criteria for book of the month. It's called The End of Food by Paul Roberts. If you've been listening to the podcast recently, you'll know that I've become deeply interested in knowing what's happening in major sectors of the economy. People all over the world are focusing away from luxuries towards essentials, and nothing is more essential than food. If supply chains are disrupted and someone can't get their favorite Louis Vuitton purse, nothing bad's going to happen. But if the food supply is disrupted and supermarkets run out of flour or beef, we can anticipate consumer hoarding behavior that will multiply all kinds of inefficiencies. The book, The End of Food, breaks down how our food system works. It chronicles the history and the evolution from the most basic agrarian economy to the thousands of new convenience products introduced each year that now line our supermarket shelves. Paul Roberts' work is extremely well-researched, and frankly, it's a riveting book to read. I simply couldn't put it down. Every page had some new insight. I don't think I will ever see the contents of the supermarket shelf the same way again. Our current system of food supply is not at all related to consumer demand. It's being driven by the need for the major food suppliers to grow their revenues and, more importantly, their earnings. As margins have fallen in various parts of the supply chain, the response has been to introduce innovations that restore the margins. But in order to get a return on those incremental investments, a higher volume of sales is required to recoup the investment. Imagine that a farmer is being squeezed on price for, say, wheat. The buyer then tells them that if they go out and spend $400,000 on a new combine, they can reduce their cost per bushel. But in order to recover the $400,000 investment, they have to actually plant more wheat, which brings more supply into the market. That increase in supply, selling into relatively unchanged demand, has the effect of lowering the price at the market. So the business case for the fancy new piece of farm equipment is actually somewhat flawed. Back in the late 1940s, fishermen in the Hudson River north of New York City found that the fish kept getting bigger and bigger. Now, fishermen are rarely ones to complain about that, but it turns out that upriver there's a pharmaceutical factory owned by Laterly. That factory produced a new antibiotic called tetracycline. At first, the company thought it was vitamin B12. It was a byproduct of the fermentation process. But in the end, it turns out that these micro doses of antibiotics were enabling the fish to expend less energy fighting bacteria in their gut and allowing more energy to go into the growth of muscles and bones. And it wasn't long after that, the food industry discovered the same effect in chickens, pigs, and cattle. Mixing antibiotics into the feed meant that the growth rate of baby chickens was increased by 25%. It increased the growth in turkeys, pigs, and calves by almost 50%. Of course, now we face a situation where antibiotic-resistant bacteria are increasingly infecting entire herds of farm animals. Fast forward to today. Major food companies like Nestle are struggling to achieve major growth in the mature markets in the U.S. and Europe. The emerging markets in Asia and Africa represent an opportunity for growth, but they require customization of products to local tastes. Nestle's new R&D center in Shanghai has divided the country into regions based on flavor preference. Chinese citizens in the mainly Muslim western provinces prefer heavily spiced meat dishes, and customers in Beijing 
prefer salty wheat-based dishes. The Chinese culture mixes herbal medicine with the notion of nutrition. Foods are more than just calories, and they can treat illness, and Nestle's products are being designed to appeal to that way of thinking. All of these product innovations are designed to add value and increase margins. The relentless focus on price has resulted in food that's of lesser quality and less nutritional value, a food culture that's increasingly defined by value pricing, by portion size, and by convenience, and a global production system that is so lean and just in time that it's simultaneously more likely to be disrupted, as we've seen in recent weeks, and less able to absorb the impact of a disruption. As you think about that, definitely go out and get a copy of Paul Roberts' book, The End of Food. It certainly changed the way that I look at food forever. Have an awesome rest of your day. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.